by verse 12. Miss Brenda was so kind to change the sign for me today and or this week and I told her the wrong passage to put on the sign. So we are in verses 12 and 13 today. 12 and 13. All right, let's pray. Father God, I'm reminded as we begin to look at this passage that all of our lives, every member, every body part, every endeavor that we undertake is to be to your glory. So help us to understand why you have established these things and what goodness that brings to church and what glory that brings you. Otherwise, what do these mean? Why do we care? And so, Lord, we're opening your word in hopes that we will find life there. Lord, we're expecting to find life here. We're expecting to have our most important nutrition. We're expecting to hear from you. And that's our intentions. That's our desire this hour. And so I pray that you'd fulfill those, meet those. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin was a reformer in Geneva, Switzerland. He uh, was battling against a, a place and a time that saw the city as and the city magistrates as those who would enact or, or oversee the discipline of the church. I mean, can you imagine? our city council being responsible for making sure uh, that we are uh, living holy lives. That would be just uh, something unbelievable to us um, and not a good thing. That's not a biblical idea. And uh, so John Calvin, being a Bible man, a reformer, trying to recapture for the people the, the essence, the message of the Bible, to get that into their own hands, into their own homes, for their own personal holiness and the building up of the church, uh, battled against that, pushed back against that, tried to uh, inform people and instruct people that that is not the way that you guard and, and keep and grow holiness in the church. You don't, you don't farm it out to uh, the city or the government. You, you do that in-house, in the church, and he was... Um, exiled from Geneva for some three years for trying to protect personal holiness. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great American minds, one of the great uh, pastors uh, ever, uh, had 23 years of fruitful ministry in a very well-known church in the East, taking over for his grandfather, and uh, spent 23 years, such a fruitful ministry, uh, then he began to try and reform or reestablish the biblical idea of who is invited to the Lord's Supper. That would be believers. 
Why do, who have rested all their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That is who is invited to and allowed to take the supper. And it's, it's so weird to us to think that that wasn't the thought uh, at that current time in that current place of, of who was allowed to take the supper. And so Jonathan Edwards tried to reestablish that from the Bible to protect the holiness of the people and to drive them further into love and devotion uh, to Jesus. He was dismissed after 23 years of fruitful ministry for trying to do that. And I bring up those two men because they help get us started. As we look at these verses in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, they were faithful pastors who were obeying the word of God and trying to apply that to the people, and they paid for it. And you think, how absurd that you'd have to pay for, for trying to promote and protect and and grow the holiness of God's people. Well, you can even go back to the Old Testament, and you can find God's messengers and the holy prophets that were paying for the very same thing. And in fact, Jesus gives a parable about that very thing and how the Son was eventually sent into the world, and He's going to pay for trying to promote the holiness and right worship of God. And I lay that out there for you because we are supposed to understand that these people given to the church all across our world are given in efforts to promote holiness, both personally and corporately as a church. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that, that they're given by Christ himself. He's given them for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And Paul and Peter will go on to explain in their epistles and letters uh, that these Guys, these men, they are men only, uh, are, are provided as under-shepherds for the great shepherd. They have certain tools in which they do this work. They have bread to feed. They have water. They have a sword and a shield to protect. All those things are aspects of the work that they are to do in caring for his church and preparing them for the marriage supper of the Lamb. All those things that are called to use to do that are the words of the Good Shepherd, Jesus. The word is always seen in those regards, right? Bread, water, living water, sword, shield. All those things are characterizations of the word that these guys are to use to do their work. And my question was, when coming to these verses, why does he use those now in this letter? Why is he talking about this now? He just got through with kind of a discourse about the day of the Lord and what that will be like and kind of an end times picture of how we'll be reunited with Jesus. And then he just seems to quickly shift in verse 12 to talking about these brothers who are over you in the Lord. Why does he do that? Well, think about it. As we begin to investigate who these people are and what they're doing, we're going to find out that they are uh, guarding, protecting, growing, uh, purifying, and preparing uh, God's people to meet him. It's not that we can't know him now, for sure, that's the thing. And it's not that he's not with us now, he definitely is in spirit and in truth. And we worship him in, in such, but there is coming a time where we're going to be presented to him wholly, blameless, without blemish, like a bride to the bridegroom on that wedding day. It's going to be amazing. 
And he's placed all these things in order to make that happen, to drive that holiness deep within our souls until it begins to radiate throughout our body, both singularly and plurally. Holiness is the goal. That's why Jesus' righteousness was given to us. If we're not holy and pure, we don't live with God forever. And then that's where mercy and grace come in. He provides that. And he provides that even now as as people such as myself are called to bring these things into the church, to teach these things, to hold these things, to hold true to these things, even if it costs whatever amount. Like Calvin, like Edwards, we exist to promote the holiness of you and your family and this family, the church. And so as we begin to think about elders, pastors, those over you, those shepherding you, all those terms are interchangeable throughout Scripture. We can see them being used in regard to one another all the time, so they're all the same thing. So don't get hung up on elders. And and in our context, we think of that being older people uh, with um, more years and wisdom. Certainly we uh, want those, and those are elders, but elders are those given to oversee and protect and promote your holiness in the church. They are pastors. They are shepherds. That's what these people are. So the first question I want to ask is, who are they? He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So who are those? Well, as he's used the The phrase here, over you, that means to manage or to lead or to be in charge of or more importantly, to be responsible for. And we'll look in Hebrews here at the end. We'll see what kind of great responsibility these people have over you. Peter tells us that even though they're over you, they're not to lord that idea over you. We are to be responsible for your souls, for for what we do with your souls and promoting your holiness and bringing you closer to Jesus and hopefully uh, walking with you as you become more like Jesus. They had to answer your questions and counsel you with the tools that the Lord, the Good Shepherd, has given us to take care of his sheep. So who are they? Well, you can read about the qualifications of these people in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5. It goes through a list of Uh, who these men are, what they look like in character, not in credential. That's important. We want to gather for ourselves people of high character. Just had a discussion this week uh, with another pastor in a a ministry that he serves, and the, the, the people that are responsible for this ministry are always saying, you know, I hope we can get a lawyer on this with us, or I hope we can get a doctor on this with us. And he was growing so frustrated and was voicing his concerns and frustration because what we're looking for, when we're looking for these shepherds, these pastors, these elders, we're looking for high character. I don't know what gifts you have or what what area of industry you serve in, but what is your character? 
certainly in response to what an elder, pastor, shepherd is, we want them to have the ability to teach. But other than that, there's no other skills. It's do they have the right heart? Do they have the right character? Do they, do they have the desire to love you well, to feed you well, to protect you? Do they have a desire for your holiness? That's, that's what we're looking for. And I have seen and experienced firsthand far too many uh, churches led by people who were just prominent in the world and were lacking all the character necessary to care for God's sheep. The highest calling, and I've searched and investigated and thought, the highest calling out there is to be asked to do that. The, the weight, the burden, the immensity of the, the Lord of the universe asking people to take care of my people. It's too much. Which then requires you to seek Him and makes you a non-self-seeking shepherd because you can't do it. Next thing I want to also notice, and this is going to play into how we think about these people and what they do to promote holiness and peace within the body, which is what I think uh, Paul's getting at here in this context. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And then in verse 13, he asks you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Anytime in Scripture we read of Paul asking Timothy to uh, appoint these shepherds or elders, or, or whether we see Paul doing it himself in Acts, it's always in the plural. There's a necessity for this work to be done by more than one person. You don't want to consolidate that type of leadership and that type of vision and that type of responsibility into one person. That's too much. He can't do it. He can't be responsible for every single soul in the church if we're understanding the weight of that responsibility. To be able to give an account, as Hebrews 13 says, for every one of those souls. It's a burden I would never seek to undertake by myself because it would be impossible. And if I'm going to speak to God about what I did with Lauren's soul or Andy's soul or, or Ray's soul, I'm going to want to make sure that I can be faithful now with how I direct those, feed those, protect those, disciple those. I mean, Jesus, as a man, only had a, a crew of 12 that he was responsible for discipling most intimately. So we, we need to understand that this is always looked at in the plural nature. In Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Every church had elders. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, Paul says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there's a, a sense of order. If, if God designed and called into effect the world, and if we're faithful to read this book of creation rightly, and to understand 
science, even in its most basic forms, even the things we learn from first and second and third grade that we probably forgot, uh, we see that God set all these things in motion in this crazy, amazing order. Everything just seems to make sense when you investigate it. You, you see that he's a God of order and that he created in a sequence of events and that those things flow and work in motion and our, our planets even, even rotate in a certain way. And it's, it's just amazing what he's done in creation. He's a God of order. And, and Paul wants Titus to do this with the church, put it in order, which would require what? Appointing elders in every town. If things aren't in order, then what do you have? Chaos. If things are in order, then what happens? Peace. Fulfillment of responsibility from a God who's a God of order. And, and here's one example that I'm going to read to you. In Exodus 18, 13 through 24, we see this happen with Moses as he's beginning to lead Israel's people and they're in the wilderness and they're trying to figure out how to exist as God's people before they go into the promised land. And Moses is God's mouthpiece and God's shepherd for these sheep that have just come out of Egypt and he's going to tell them, tell Moses and instruct him and show him how this is going to work in order. So here's a scene between Moses and his Father-in-law, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said, the result being peace and order. That's what his father-in-law was promoting. That's what he was giving him sage advice to do. Moses was not able to answer all those that would inquire of God through Moses. Moses was not able to promote the holiness of God's people by himself. And his father-in-law saw this thing and how quickly it was going to be impossible for man to undertake. And so he wisely instructed him to find those men and notice the parallel between 
the, what, he, what kind of men they're looking for versus the qualifications of these men that we see in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. High character guys. Not greedy for gain, it says in 1 Timothy 3. It says here in Exodus 18, not, uh, not eager to take a bribe. Do you see the parallel? This is always God's design to do. To place people over you, not to rule you, but to promote peace and order. We have to have it. And those people have to recognize that, as the Bible makes very clear, there is only one head of the church. It's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus. And when you have multiple men working together for that endeavor, multiple men, namely looking to Jesus, that would be the number one characteristic of high character, then you have a faithful group of shepherds who can care for every single soul. My goal, my desire here is to not make sure that a bunch of you are doing well, but that everybody is doing well spiritually. And that requires more people than me to do it. And thanks be to God, he's provided those men. They might not want to call themselves elders or shepherds, but they are. Their character says so. The, the, the calling of God says so on how they fit into the body as members. And you are further protected, further blessed, further fed, and further drawn in to the holiness of Jesus, better prepared for that day in which you will meet him. You'll meet him in the air that we just read at the first half of this chapter. So that's a brief explanation of who they are. But what do they do? Paul mentions a few things here. They, they labor, they're over you, they admonish you, they're working. What do they do? Well, here's a quote from Spurgeon. And he talks about who those people are and how they come to their work. He says, the labor of the Christian ministry is well performed in exact proportion to the vigor of our renewed nature. Our work is only well done when it is well with ourselves. And then he explains what the work is. To face the enemies of truth, to defend the bulwarks of the faith, to rule well in the house of God, to comfort all that mourn, to edify the saints, to guide the perplexed, to bear with the froward, which is the disobedient, to win and nurse souls, all these and a thousand other works besides are not for a feeble mind or are ready to halt, but are reserved for great heart, whom the Lord has made strong for himself. Seek then the strength from the strong one, wisdom from the wise one, in fact, all from the God of all. This is what we approach in our tasks. The faithful shepherd sees all of life as pertaining to all of eternity. Everything that you do, everything that you encounter, everything that tries to come against you, everything that even works for your good, everything is working out 
a weight of glory that you have yet to be revealed. And we look for that. We, we work for that. We wait for that. I had the opportunity to observe Chris hunting yesterday morning. That's what I was, I wasn't, I mean, I was watching. And we got out there, I don't know, 5.30 in the morning, and then daylight starts to break at 6, and we see some things, and then it's 7, and we see nothing, and then it's 8, and we see a little more, and then it's 9, and we see nothing, and then it's 10, and then Chris is like, well, okay, that's about it. But, but what I observed there, right, was, was the patience, the waiting for the fruit. He was there, and he was ready, and, and he was, was ready to harvest at any moment, and he waited patiently. And that's a labor in and of itself, especially when you have to go to the bathroom. You're, you're waiting, Right? And he, and he worked, he'd put up his stand and he'd put out decoys and he'd put out plots and he's done all this stuff and he waited for the fruit. Sometimes it doesn't come. Sometimes it does. But what these people do, these men, is they labor. Labor in hopes. The word labor here means what we think of when we think of labor, a wearisome task unto extreme Fatigue. A lot of you use the joke, I thought pastors only work on Sunday. And haha, funny. But anyways, you know, I, I come from somewhat of an ag background. I've worked for my dad for years and, of course, uh, Andy's family farm. And, you know, you think of work in physical terms. You think of it as, as, as pushing as hard as you physically can to complete the task and for doing it as long as is necessary to complete the task. And then you're labeled a hard worker, right? And so when I was called by the Lord to sit at a desk and open a book and look at an ancient language, I thought, man, you know, is, is, is this work? And I thought that for about two seconds, and then I started doing it. And I, I would almost beg at times to be back out in a field or beg at times to be manually working, because it is wearisome. And one of the most wearisome things about it is sometimes there's no fruit. And you work and you press in every week and you pour out your soul and, and you go through these counseling sessions and you work with people and you pray for them and you see nothing. And then the next week you've got to start over. And you've you got to make sense of, of this and you've got you to know that God's watching, God's uh, working and, and waiting in you, and you, you're responsible for taking his word and, in the right manner and bringing it to the people in the right way without sticking your fingers in the food, so to speak. And then do it again, and then do it again, and do it again, and do it again. It is work. It's amazing work. And I've talked to you sometimes throughout the weeks, some of you, and I've said, you know, I can't even hardly open this book this week. Especially after a big Easter week, it was, it was hard. But that labor is what's required to feed the sheep, to protect the sheep, to guard the sheep, 
to help the sheep, to heal the sheep. That's what it's for. That's why we work. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those whose same word here, labor in preaching and teaching. It's so much work, in fact, that in Acts chapter 6, you see the apostles say, look, um, (laughs) this is so difficult and takes such a long time and requires so much that we can't even get out to be a part of the daily distribution of feeding the widows and the orphans. We can't do it. It's It's amazing. And, and here's Paul's instruction a chapter earlier to Timothy about how this looks. How is he supposed to do this and what this means, this work. He says, 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 11, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, command, and teach these things. He's 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 the example to young Timothy on how this looks. Paul is one that is toiling and striving to put these things before the brothers, to be a good servant of Jesus, to being trained himself in the words of faith and good doctrine, to be able to train others in good faith and good doctrine. And then he tells Timothy, do the same thing. And you're going to toil and you're going to strive also says something that they do in verse 12. They admonish, they instruct, they warn, they counsel. How do they do that? Well, as I said before, our only tool is the Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, playing on Ephesians 4, in which we're told that these people are given to the church to equip you for the work of the ministry. And we do that. Scripture. We lay that before. We counsel. We instruct. We warn with Scripture. If we have any other tool but Scripture, then it's not sufficient. A lot of you know what it's like to have the wrong tool for the job. It doesn't work quite as well. But if you have the right tool, then the job can get done. And this is something the Lord's impressed on me through watching faithful men do this. It, I remember one point in time, I had an uh, interim pastor who was a professor of mine. And before then, I was thinking, okay, I need to have a joke. I need to have three points. I need to have an illustration that makes people cry, and I need to get out of there. I thought that's how you did it. And then I watched this guy, and he did what I'm attempting to do. Just open the Bible and explain what it said. Don't worry about making people laugh. 
You worry about making people cry. Spirit can take care of that. You give them the word. And like a light bulb went off. That's how you do it. And then, and then I watched as he would counsel people that were, that were dying or, or people that were struggling or people that had sinned. And he would just open his Bible and explain the word. This is the tool. This is what I hope to lay before you in everything, every conversation, every instruction, every admonishment, so that you are trained up in godliness. And being trained up in godliness means this. You are made holy. You are sanctified so that one day that will lead to you being glorified. And that is what Romans 8 tells us. All creation is awaiting the revelation of the sons and daughters of God in holiness. This is what Moses was doing in Israel. This is what God has instructed from the beginning of time for people to do, to be about. And those qualifications that I mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5 tell us a lot about what these guys are doing. Everything pertains to the word, their character, and how they apply that character to the church pertains. Where do we do this? Do we just do this anywhere? Do we just go find any Christian anywhere and, and, and do this work, labor? No. We're laboring amongst the flock in a town where God has appointed us elders. And also, think about this. He says in verse 12, these people are over you in the Lord. That's where it begins. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from, the whole, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We do this work in the body so that the body functions properly. And you could even say in order, namely in peace, which is what he's getting at at the end of verse 13 here. Because if we don't reflect those things, which are characteristics of God, he's the God of order, he's, he's the Prince of Peace, he's all this. If we don't reflect that, then nobody is going to see the gospel's effectiveness in the lives of sinners. We have to make this known, and we have to be instructed on how to make this known, and we have to be guarded from any doctrine or anybody that might come in and try and disrupt that or tear that apart. Do you not think that Satan is about going after the church? You think he's more occupied with hitting those, those centers of, of secular society, or he's more occupied with getting into God's people, disrupting the gospel unity and the peace, and making sure that's another body that does not display the gospel to the world. After all, 
He's roaming around as an angel of light. And where would you see angels of light? You'd see them in amongst God's people, wouldn't you? So he gave these things that we just read. And we are all, we are all, all those things are part of the body. He is the head, period. We also do this through him. In the Lord carries with it that idea that it's done in him, it's done through him, it's done to him. Galatians 2.20, Paul recognizes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 15.18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by what? By word and deed. In Jesus. You want to find faithful men from among you to carry out this task, to promote the holiness of the church, to maintain unity and peace so that the gospel is made visible in your midst and that, that goes out from you, then you find people who recognize that all of their life is to be lived in Christ, through Christ, and to Christ. Don't find the smartest one you know. Don't find the one with the most credentials or the most letters after their name. Find the one who is devoted to Christ. That's why I love Acts 4.13. They recognized what about Peter and John? That these men had been with Jesus. Ordinary fishermen. Ordinary fishermen. They'd been with Jesus. That is the qualification for not only a calling to the ministry or a calling to shepherd, but, but a faithful ministry. Recognize those men. I already mentioned earlier that they're over you. And that is not to mean that they rule everything because you have to have the ability, after all, to kick them out if they're wrong. This isn't a dictatorship or a tyrannical rule or anything. This is a, this is a shepherding. It's exactly what it is. It's a leading to good things. It's a protecting. It's a helping. It's a healing. It's a binding up. It's not a rule. I wholeheartedly believe in a church government and where the, the church makes the decision together. They're led there by the pastors, but the congregation has to make the decision. We see that in Scripture. Otherwise, how could they obey Paul's command to dismiss false teachers from among their midst? How could they obey God's command to, to enact church discipline, which would be to have to recognize together that this person is no longer a part of the fellowship, therefore we need to reach him with the gospel or reach her with the gospel? It doesn't mean we kick him out the doors. It means that we go about gospel work and, and <clears throat> establishing them as faithful brothers and sisters, because obviously their behavior proves otherwise. That's church discipline. And that's, that's led and, and taught and overseen by these men. 1 Corinthians 16, 16, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Kind of a mutual submission idea, whatever the Lord has called each of you to do, 
there's going to be a requirement for the church to follow or to help in like manner. So that requires us to submit to those things the Lord has called us to do. Now, in Hebrews 13, 17, this is the big one for me. This is what scares me. This is what brings me such, um, just boggles my mind. How am I to do this? Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Just because they're leaders? No. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. Don't you want a shepherd to be glad to shepherd you? Like, wow, look at these sheep. They are amazing. They always go for the good grass. They know the boundaries. They don't, they don't jump outside the fence where the wolves are. They don't bite and kick me. They walk up. I lay down, and we have fellowship. And I would encourage you to meditate on the fact that we, not just me, are called at some point to give an account for you. Not only our own family, but you. So, would I encourage you not to listen to this or that teacher or to not read this or that book? That's because, according to the Word of God and through that filter, I have found that that thing would be bad for you. And that's my job. That's my calling. That's, that's my privilege. It's to keep you from those things and to give you the good things. You're not my children. Much of you are my spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, but there is a watch that I have over you. And that watch comes from a desire to present you mature, full of the Spirit, ready to meet Christ. Remember what Jesus told Peter after the resurrection. He said to them the third time, to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. you'll know that I stopped loving Jesus if I no longer feed you. If I don't toil and labor and strive in the work of the word, I don't love you. If I don't share these things with you, if I don't keep you from things, if I don't, if I don't press into your spiritual life, I don't love you. Because if I love Jesus, then I will obey his commands and feed his sheep because the church is his body. And who hates his own body? But if he loves it, he nourishes it and he cherishes it. He washes it with the pure water of the word. These are illustrations that we have in marriage that is, can be expanded and applied to the work of shepherding over the whole Church, this is Jesus' body. This is the only institution in all the world for all of time that he himself promised to build. 
guaranteed fruit, so to speak. Why would I not want to be a part of what he's doing, what he's concerned about? He's concerned about you. He's concerned about the holiness of this church. So he says in verse 13, esteem them, that is to respect them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. You know, one thing that I've seen take place in our culture and society, and not that I've experienced this in any way, but, but you can see it grab a hold of people's minds. Pastors aren't as highly valued or respected as doctors, politicians, presidents. But if you, if you sit and meditate on the eternal call and the eternal weight of responsibility that they have over you, it should change the way that we understand who these people are. They are working for your eternal good. All these others that we so highly esteem and so go crazy over are working for your temporary good. And we have to have them. We do. And we have to love them and respect them and and we need them. But think about what these guys are doing. And I speak that objectively. I'm not even thinking of myself being inserted in that conversation because you have more than just me and you'll have more than just after, after me. We have to understand the work is such a massive, massively, eternally important work. And when we're cavalier and not valuing who these guys are, that's when we get wolves coming in that are carrying shepherd's staves. And they say, hey, come over here, when really they're leading the sheep to slaughter. He ends it by saying, be at peace among yourselves. What? The Thessalonian church was stirred up by all sorts of false doctrine, all sorts of people coming in saying, you missed the resurrection. It already happened. Now what? All sorts of lies, all sorts of chaos now, because they're in the midst of, of persecution, and they're wondering, what do we do? How do we do this? Or, uh, how does this work? And so Paul's telling them, you have people who have been put over you, given to you, and equipped by the Lord Jesus to equip you and to protect you from such things and to kick out the wolves. And if they are doing their work, and if you're allowing them to do their work, and if you're respecting that work and submitting to that work, there will be peace. They are agents. They are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where else is there greater peace than in him? Think about your own body when it's working right and everything feels okay, when nothing's broken or aching. There's peace, isn't there? Peace in your body. But we want that. We want that so bad that we're going to labor for that. We're going to work for that. So in conclusion, think about this. Paul is doing these things in this letter to comfort to admonish, to encourage, and bring peace to a worried, scared, and confused people. And he's doing it with what? The Word of God. 
serving as an example to the elders that are going to read that letter as part of the Thessalonian church, serve, writing these things and doing these things to serve as an example for us to come. And so I, I pray that you would thank God for n- not me, but the men among you who do this. For the, for the men in your lives who have done this and the men who are yet to come who will do this. And that you would praise God and you would submit to that knowing that you're going to receive good when he provides these people. And then we'll stand and sing.